Well, good morning. I hope that everybody's having a good day. I don't know if y'all have been enjoying the news. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about the Ruth Bader Ginsburg seat that has been open. I don't know if any of y'all have been watching the confirmation hearings, but they have been phenomenal. Um, I am a fan of Amy Coney Barrett, and I'm going to tell you what my favorite thing about her is. She did the most savage thing that I think has ever been done in the nomination process. You had Senator Cornyn, our state senator, one of our two, and he was going through all of his notes, and he looked down and noticed something different about Judge Barrett, and he basically just asked her one question. He said, we have all of our notes. We have everything going on, but I don't know. What do you have in front of you? And she held up a blank notepad. And he said, what's written on there? And she said, United States Senate. That's all. It's your letterhead. She went to a confirmation hearing with no notes at all. And I'm just going to tell you this. When it comes to people interpreting the law, I want someone that smart on, on the bench. I don't I don't know about anything else, but someone who can just define the law and know the law. And the whole thing has been very weird because I was expecting a firestorm, right? Like I was expecting this to be World War VIII in the U.S. Senate, uh, something like that. But instead, it was a relatively calm hearing. It was so good that Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is the Feinstein, who is the head of the Judiciary Committee for the Democrats, said this about the leader of this whole process, Lindsey Graham. She said, Senator Graham, this has been the greatest confirmation hearing process I've ever been a part of in all my years in the U.S. Senate. A Democrat said this about a Republican a controversial Republican as well. And then she got up out of her seat after it was over and she gave Lindsey Graham a hug. She also said this about Justice Barrett, or Judge Barrett. She said, you will make a fine justice. A Democrat praising someone appointed about a by a Republican. It was monumental in the Senate. And if you didn't know any better, you would think maybe... People in, in Washington, maybe the people in D.C. can get together, but within seconds, there was a call on the Democratic side of the aisle to get rid of Dianne Feinstein because she praised Senator Graham. What I'm afraid of in the church is there could be issues and situations to where we might resemble this in one form or fashion. To where instead of us maintaining the idea of what's best for our church, the way that our senators should be saying what's best for our country, we might choose a side one way or the other. And so today what we're going to be talking about is unity, not to just the church or unity towards one another. We're going to be talking about unity to the king because we belong to a kingdom that is greater than being a Texan or an American. We belong to the kingdom of God. And so I want you to turn to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 22 through 27. And to give you kind of a background as to what's been taking place while Jesus is speaking these words, he had been going around, as Hunter talked about last week, and spreading his fame because he was performing miracles left and right. He was healing people. He was just garnering this reputation. And the problem with him is he was a religious outsider. He was healing and getting notoriety, but he wasn't a part of the establishment. Jesus was one who 
was aligned to the kingdom of God, not the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He didn't come up or earn his seat at the table. And so these religious people decided that they were going to do whatever they could to defame him. They would do whatever they could to stop him or slow him down, which led to ridiculous accusations, which is where we pick up in our text. And the scribes came down from Jerusalem, and they were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. So Jesus is performing all these miracles, and the religious leaders say, look, he's obviously demon-possessed because he's getting rid of demons. That was their accusation. That he, being demon-possessed, was somehow going to gain notoriety by stopping the work of demons himself. Verse 23 says, And he called to them, this is Jesus, called to them, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Like, how is what you're saying making any sense at all? How can Satan cast out himself? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless first he binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus starts off and he says, your argument is so stupid that it doesn't even make sense. And he points to a bigger reality for all of us. There is stupidity in disunity. Jesus is taking a negative accusation and giving us a positive lesson from it. Anytime we fight among ourselves... There is nothing left to be said about it and other than it's this. It is not intelligent. It is not smart. In fact, it is counter smart, which is stupid. He looks and he says, the scribes as they're coming down calling him possessed, casting out demons as a demon. He called to them and said, how can Satan cast out himself? It doesn't even, your, your logic if you have demons who are causing problems, if you have demons that are creating hostility and animosity, if they're running amok, why would a demon want to stop that? If Satan is winning, why would he want to stop what's being effective? And this is what, what happens a lot of times is people, when they don't know what else to do, they come up with ridiculous arguments. For here, the teachers brought this nonsensical accusation against Jesus. And it's one of those things that was so ridiculous, it just kind of needed to be pointed out. But there's a, a greater truth that is to be learned here. Jesus was effective. In what he was doing. Jesus was changing the world. He had entered into his public ministry. And although he didn't get credit or praise from the religious people. He was being highly effective. I remember whenever I came here six years ago. We're in the midst of my six year anniversary time. And so I get kind of 
reminiscent over what was happening. I remember my first sermon as pastor. I made this statement. I said, we should never be concerned when we feel like we're facing oppression or whenever we feel like we're being attacked as a church. We should never be concerned when that happens. We should be concerned when it doesn't happen. Because churches that are ineffective get left alone. But the churches that are pressing back the gates of hell, the churches that are effective in reaching people with Jesus Christ, we will face oppression. We will face battles within ourselves. And here's what I firmly believe. The more effective we are for Christ, the more extreme our enemy will attack us. I have gotten to a point in my years in ministry to where whenever we have a great Sunday, I wait on Monday for there to be a stupid argument. When we see lots of people coming to faith in Christ, whenever we see lots of people getting baptized, I'm just ready for someone to find something stupid to complain about. Whenever you, you think about what's going on here, as a church, because we're committed to the gospel, as a church, because we want to make an impact for the kingdom, as a church, because we want to reach the lost, see them saved, baptized, and discipled, I can promise you, we will face opposition. Because we believe in heaven and hell, we are committed to do what no one else is doing to reach people that no one else is reaching for the gospel. We will do things that seem ridiculous. Over the past couple of weeks, I've heard criticism about having fall festival. Not from everybody, just a comment here and there. Why would we do that? Well, we will do it because we are committed to doing what no one else is doing to reach people that no one else is reaching for the gospel. The reason that I want our church family to know that our proposal, that our game plan for Fall Festival was approved by the city, who was liberal, I think, who hasn't always done everything we've asked, because it kind of builds credibility towards our game plan. Julie's excited about it. Whenever I think about this, I fully expect a lot of people to be here. And by the way, we need good candy, lots of it. I remember my second year here, we had to send Brent Hargrove to Target. He bought all their candy, came back. We ran out. We had to send him to Walmart. He bought all their candy, came back. We got rid of all of that candy. We had to go to a third store. And then it was over candy good stuff we did this because we just want a lost and dying world to hear the hope of the gospel we proclaim the good news because we believe that everybody needs to hear it and what we see sometimes is people who may not like what's going on as these religious people did not like what Jesus was doing 
is they will find little things that they can nitpick at. They'll take their own perspective and, and just kind of grind a point that may not even make sense. In fact, I said this, or wrote this in my notes. Satan may attack us through extreme accusations from other religious people or dissensions and factions caused by loyal friends. Even the most ridiculous accusation will convince someone when it's cleverly packaged to sound sincere and concerned. We must stand firm for truth. Because there can be this thing that happens. And I don't even think it's malicious. Where some people in their concern might speak out in a way that just creates a rift. And so I think about, okay, how do we as a church maintain unity? Because it's quite clear what verse 24 and 25 says. Verse 24 and 25 says, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If a church is divided against itself, it will not stand. If a business is divided against itself, it will not stand. If a family is divided against itself, it will not stand. Like, how do we have unity? Because success comes from sticking together and doing anything else is going to invoke disaster within a people. How do we maintain togetherness? Because Christ makes it so clear if we don't, disaster awaits us. Christian disunity works against Christ himself. I think about this all the time. One of the things I believe as a, a shepherd, as a pastor, of a leader of a church is that we've got to do whatever we can to maintain unity. We've got to work for it. We've got to stand on guard to that which is entrusted to us. Have any of y'all ever been a part of a church where there's been fighting? Any of y'all ever seen disunity? This was at First Baptist No Water last week. It's a pastor. He just gave up. I'm just kidding. I don't know where that came from. But you know what I'm talking about, right? You've seen silly fights and arguments. You've seen when a staff turns against a staff or a deacon turns against another deacon or a connect group teacher takes issue with whatever. We must understand this, that our strength, our believability, our effectiveness for Christ our ability to impact darkness with the light of Christ depends on our unity. Because if people out there cannot see people in here loving one another, if people outside of the church can't see the love of Christ lived out inside the church, why would they want what we proclaim? I mean, think about it. When we speak out in the community against Christians, 
All it does is shred the believability of the gospel. When we have our little soapbox moment where we want to whine and cry about somebody not being nice to us or this happening or that happening, why would any of your non-Christian friends believe a word that you say when it comes to the gospel? They will look at Jesus, they will look at the church, they will look at you in your mouth and they will say, if that's what Christ is about, I want nothing to do with it. We must maintain our unity. I thought about maybe some simple tips here that might help. You know, the, the first thing I, I think we must do as a church, that we must do as followers of Jesus Christ, if we're going to have unity, is we've got to stop assuming the worst of others and start assuming the best. About a year and a half ago, I made the comment that when it comes to ourselves, we always assume the best. But when it comes to others, we always assume the worst. Why would they do that to me? They did this just so they could have that. We always think when it comes to other people, when we hear something we don't like, or we see something that we disagree with, when they take a stance that doesn't align with us, that their intents are evil and that our hearts are always pure. We've got to quit thinking that way. Number two is we need to commit to ourselves to building other people up instead of tearing other people down. You want to have unity? Quit saying bad things about others. Number three, commit to not forcing your opinions on other people. When it comes to essentials of the gospel, when it comes to knowing and living and proclaiming the word of truth, it is our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to speak truth into the hearts and lives of other people. But whenever it comes to your personal opinions, get over yourself. There are so many people who are not happy in life unless everybody does what they think they should do. Do you know what those people are? Miserable to be around. They will call and tell you what you should have done even though your behaviors and your actions are none of their business. It's heightened in election season. Number four, we want to have unity. Keep our focus on what matters most. Keep our focus on what's most important. As followers of Jesus Christ, the lordship of Christ should be the driving factor in your life. Our job, our goal should be to make sure that everyone hears the good news of Jesus Christ. We should be more concerned about spreading the gospel message than we should be about spreading a message about politics or anything else. Maintain unity for the cause of Christ. And the, the thing that I think might be most helpful in maintaining unity, the tip I can give you is to follow Scripture and instead of talking about people, talk to people. Nothing drives me more batty in my brain than whenever I hear of one person calling another person to talk about someone that they don't even know. Like, what is the benefit of you being a loudmouth gossip, a slanderer? If you have a problem with someone, call the person. If you have a question about someone or something, call the source. Be scriptural. 
You cannot say you love God and gossip. You cannot say you love the Bible and not follow it. Just a tip. You know, when our country was at its worst, there was disunity. And the, the, the one who spoke out against the disunity and the hostility in our country was Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln actually quoted Scripture at the Republican Convention, June 16, 1858. He said this, A house divided against itself cannot stand. And this was at the height, right before the Civil War. He actually lost this election. He was speaking to the, the fact that one way or the other, something had to give. And this is what he said. He said, I believe the government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will either become all one thing or all the other. Fortunately, he won. Fortunately, the North won. And the South was wrong. They will always be wrong. Truth won out. All men are created equal by God. We cannot have division. If we do, our nation will crumble. If we have division in our church, our church will crumble. If we think our preference, our opinion, is most important, it will drive a wedge between us and others, and the name of Christ is that which suffers. I'm just going to share my opinion on something. You can do whatever you want with it. The pulpit is not meant, nor has it ever been meant, to be a soundbox for political stances. As a church, we are called to proclaim the name of Jesus, no candidate. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. We must unite around the gospel message that there are sinners in need of a Savior who desperately need Christ. We must proclaim it. Everything else is just a distraction. I hope we don't have brother fighting against brother, son against father over things that are just temporary. I hope that we can maintain unity for the name and the sake and the cause of Jesus Christ. That we could be stabilized by the gospel. Verse 26 and 27 continues and it says, And if Satan rises against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. He's going back to how stupid their argument was. It makes no sense for Satan to want to tear up his own cause and his own name. It just destroys what he's doing in the same way that it makes no sense for a believer to stand against a believer. It just tears down the gospel message and the believability of the gospel. Verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. He's saying in order for us to be effective we must bind together the, the strong. He's talking about the enemy, but the other is true. Like in order for us to be effective, we must bind together in strength and unity that which is most important, which is why it's so important for us to understand the cost. As a church, we proclaim Christ as the true essential. 
that no one comes to the Father except by Him. And if we don't get it right, if we let stupid things cause division within our church, what's going to happen is the young people in the church won't believe the gospel message. The people outside who desperately need it, who need light in the dark world, won't hear it. And we can forget about the baptismal water stirring. What's most important? The cause of Christ. The second thing I would say is we need to neglect preference for effectiveness. I think about this. As a church, we've done so good. Since I'm right at my my six-year anniversary point, I think back over some of the the great things that have happened over the past six years. I remember my, my first Sunday. I remember who walked the aisle and joined with us. Speeds have been kicking themselves ever since. I'm just kidding. It's the best decision you ever made, right? Greg's like, now my wife and Jesus. He's just staring at me. I remember the family of four that we baptized my second Sunday. But one of the greatest moments we had in our church happened in the adult six classroom before maybe anybody in this building was here. There were a few. I remember because y'all were there, right? I walked into the adult six classroom. I said, what would you give? These were our senior adults, right? I said, what would you give to have your children and your grandchildren and some of you, your great-grandchildren, come to church? What would you sacrifice? What would you give? It's my only question. Not a sales pitch, just a question. Do you all remember? And I remember going in there, and their comment was this. There's nothing we wouldn't give. Why do you ask? And I said, I need your classroom. See, back then, Adult 6 had the best classroom in the entire church. It was the newest. It was the nicest. They had the best chairs. They had the best everything. But the problem was, we didn't have a children's area. We just had children scattered here, there, and everywhere. It was chaotic. Can you imagine a church without a children's area? That's where we were. I went in there and I said, this is what we want to do. We want to take your area, your area. We want to move walls around and we want to create a secure area to where children can come in and their parents can know that there's every single person in that room was like, no problem at all. Where do we meet next week? Every single one of them. No fight, no argument, no contention, no problem. They gave up their best classroom for children grandchildren and great-grandchildren love it whenever I think about this there's another thing for us to be united that we must do invite other people to speak into our lives I believe one of the essentials for us to live the Christian life is accountability I don't talk about accountability as something you should do I live out accountability and hope other people will follow my example not that I'm perfect but this is one thing that that I do you can ask any deacon that serves in our church we meet once a month at the end of every deacon's meeting I say is there anything you see in my heart of my life that I need to be aware of that's not pleasing It's not pleasing to God. Is there anything you see in me that I need to be aware of? I've told every one of our deacons that if you ever see anything in me that that doesn't line up with Scripture, if if I'm not living well, if I'm not leading well, you need to come tell me. And I personally would take great offense if they saw something to me and didn't speak to it in my life. I've told my staff members the same thing. Walter was very good at it. But I, out of reverence towards Christ, submit myself 
to people that I might have authority over because ultimately I report to Christ and out of reverence towards Christ, I will submit myself to others. And every single one of us needs someone that we believe that will speak truth into our lives even when we don't want to hear it. And we need to give them permission to do that instead of being full of pride, not for ourselves, although it helps us, but for Christ and His name. One of the things that... that Happened this week, Thursday morning, our power, prayer time, greater things prayer time. We come and we pray for the relocation that is our central focus. David Kerr led this. Not the pastor, David Kerr. He shared how he felt like as a country and a church, we needed to guard our unity and protect our unity as a church. And this is what he said. This was his verse. Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. And he spoke about unity. The greatest part about this for me is he had no idea what I was preaching on this week. Lord, keep us as one, as you are one. I think the other thing we need to do is we need to trust God's lordship. So many times we treat our Christianity as some kind of cafeteria buffet line. We like salvation. We'll have a little bit of joy. We'll have fellowship, but whenever it comes to lordship, we're like, no, I don't want that right now. What we need to do if Christ is going to be Lord, he has to be Lord of everything in our lives. Got to make him reign supreme, not our own minds or our heart or anything like that. And finally, what I would say is we need to yield to God. In order for our church to have unity, we've got to yield to God's will.